Who says the Bible has to be boring? On the contrary, the Bible is the most thrilling book in the world. It's the only book with an invitation to join the very narrative you are reading. My goal is to be like your time-traveling tour guide, taking you into an exploration of scripture in search of precious treasure. Timeless, life-giving truths that inform us of who God is, who we are, and how the story of everything really is His story. I invite you to join me as we learn to read the story, trust the story, and live the story, because there's no greater adventure than knowing the God of the Bible. I'm Brayden Brookshire, and this is Adventures in Theology. Here are some fun facts for you. The sun's rays are good for us, in moderation, of course. Healthy amounts of exposure to the sun allow us to receive vitamin D, which has many benefits for us. The sun's rays are also a natural mood enhancer, decreasing symptoms of depression. However, we must also be cautious not to overstay our welcome exposed to the sun's rays. It's recommended that if you plan to spend more than 30 minutes, uh, you wear some type of sunscreen. And trust me, my wife is on it. She will make sure that I wear sunscreen if we are out there beyond 30 minutes. Too much sun and we can greatly increase our chances of skin cancer. And that is because a sunburn actually results in damaged DNA in our cells. So in summary, the sun's rays are both necessary for our health, but also potentially dangerous. And all of this provides a helpful illustration. To be in God's presence is the highest happiness of all life and existence. We were created to be known and to know him intimately. Psalm 16.11 even tells us that in God's presence is the fullness of joy. And that word for fullness denotes total satisfaction. Like the sun's rays, we absolutely need exposure to God's presence. However, unfortunately, with the reality of sin, uh, we cannot be in God's full presence. A sinful person cannot stand in the full glory of his presence. And so that, that person would be obliterated by him since his presence is both powerful and also a little bit fatal to us. And so today, I want to lead you to discover, as we have already begun to, that the new creation is a sacred place where God's presence will be unveiled to us and will bless us instead of harm us. The world is gifted with his presence, yeah, even right now, but not in its entirety. Because the fall, uh, the, the, because we live in a fallen world, we cannot handle the fullness of it. It would kill us. So God's presence is both fundamental to us and fatal to us. And yet the whole journey is building towards a day when God's presence would no longer be held at bay. A day when God's manifest presence will finally, fully, and forever be with us. So let's start with reading Revelation 21, 9 through 11. There's some things I want to point out first. So yeah, Revelation 21, 9 through 11. And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and lofty mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, arrayed with the glory of God. Its radiance is like a precious stone, something like a jasper stone, bright like crystal. And how do we make sense of this, what we're reading here? It's easy to get confused when reading this passage. There seems to be uh, some mixed use of metaphors again. And, you know, like, how, how is the bride a city that is descending out of heaven? But this type of literature enjoys its ability to mix its metaphors. 
The heavenly city is both a people, the bride of Christ, and a place, the new Jerusalem. It's both. The new Jerusalem is referenced back in Revelation 3.12, where all believers who keep the faith are promised to obtain residency within the new Jerusalem. And this idea is not foreign to the rest of the Bible. Once again, most imagery in Revelation is rooted in something promised in the Old Testament. Isaiah 65, 17, we've referenced this verse before, uh, which is an earlier announcement of the future promised new heavens and new earth, was written hundreds of years prior to Revelation. Then, in the next verse, in Isaiah 65, 18, records God saying this, But rejoice and shout in exultation forever and ever over what I am going to create. For behold, I am about to create Jerusalem as a source of rejoicing, and her people as a source of joy. Dwell on that. God is making a place and a people to be marked by happiness. In the end, according to Isaiah 65, 18, there will only be one supreme commandment for God's servants to obey forever and ever, to rejoice forever in that which he creates. Then in the next verse, Isaiah 65, 19, God says, I will shout in exaltation over Jerusalem. I re- will rejoice over my people. That's God talking there. He will rejoice over his people. It's not hard to imagine that we could celebrate with sheer delight what God has done and will do, but to think that God will rejoice in us? It almost sounds absurd. Like, how can we bring such pleasure to the Lord? And the relationship between God and his people will be marked by a mutual, common joy. It's beautiful. And so the New Jerusalem is a city. This city is both a people and a place. And the city of God is, this is where the people of God will live for eternity. Yet it's wholly composed of people themselves. It's the mixed metaphors of the people and the place. And as a people, it's God's collective community of redeemed people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. So don't get it confused by calling it a new Jerusalem, thinking it's just people who live in Jerusalem. Obviously not. And now the paramount joy of the new Jerusalem will be the fact that God's presence is no longer separate from us and no longer dangerous to us, like our example a few minutes ago of the sun's rays. And with that, I want to spend the rest of today's time making sense of this major theme and revelation of God's presence. I have a handout actually in the show notes of today's episode, so check that out. The link is in the details uh, part, and it has fill-ins of what we're about to talk about. So uh, follow along if you want or look at it later. Cool? Okay, here we go. So there are three major points for this first part that are fill-ins, and they're all T's, which should make them memorable. But what we're trying to do here is I'm going to give you three T's that affirm that God's world and our world truly have been wed as one, joined as one. Okay, the first T is God's tabernacle. The Greek word there is skene. So the first T, God's tabernacle, will be there. And Revelation 21.3 is that verse that we need to check out. And we've already seen this verse, so this will sound familiar. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Behold, God's tabernacle is with humanity, and he will tabernacle with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. So that should sound familiar. We tackled that a few weeks ago. Uh, and just to note again, some translations refer to this as the dwelling place of God, and that's great. The most literal translation of the word skene is tabernacle, but this word essentially means dwelling, home, or place of residence. Both the noun and the verbal form are used in Revelation 21.3. 
We've already spoken of this, so I don't want to belabor the point here. Simply put, God's home will forever be with us, and we will be one family. Let me give you an analogy of this. When we think of holidays, part of the reason it's great is maybe because we get to see family that we don't see other parts of the year. And we all have love having Aunt Susie in our life a few days of the year because she lives many miles away. And then we get to say goodbye, and I'll see you next year. And don't worry, I don't have an aunt named Susie, so I'm not actually degrading her. But you see my point. When we have relatives, it's great because we, they have a home somewhere else, we have a home somewhere else, we visit for a little bit, and it's great, but then we go our separate ways. And, and we, sometimes we think about it with God like that. But if you see my point, one of the things that's so spectacular about Revelation 21 and 22 is how in the new creation, God makes his home, his dwelling place, his tabernacle with us. He doesn't have a vacation home here while he remains transcendently far off in heaven where he can visit us but doesn't have to live with us. On the contrary, he desires to live closely and personally with us forever. So that's the first T. The tabernacle of God will be with us. Now the second T in your fill-ins, the second T, God's temple, or the Greek naos, will be there. God's temple will be there. Revelation 21:22. It reads this. This is quite an ironic verse. Um, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Let's talk about that. This one needs a little bit more explanation, okay? So instead of a physical temple being there, God and the Lamb uh, will be its temple. Our hope isn't waiting for a rebuilding of some temple. To, to think that would ignore what the temple truly signifies. It signifies the presence of God. But let's not forget to read the verses leading up to this one because it's really important. So before you get to verse 22 where it says, I did not see a temple because the Lord and God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple, there are a few verses we need to read. Verses 15 through 21. So Revelation 21, 15 through 21. Follow along. <laughs> so, uh, warning, some of these words in here of names of some stones are really hard to pronounce. If I mispronounce them, I don't even feel bad. They're hard. Okay, let's read. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length, and as wide and high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using a human measurement, and it was 144 cubits thick. The wall was made of jasper, and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundation of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone, the first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth emethate. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl, and the great street of the city was gold, as pure as transparent glass." The description of an imagery in Revelation 25, 15 through 21 is not arbitrary. Some people gloss over and start to zone out when they're reading things like that, especially because there's some difficult words, but it's not arbitrary. There, there's a point to it. John was not only seeing something, he was communicating something to his audience. I want to see if we catch this. The measurements of the holy city formed a perfect cube. It was a square, a perfect cube. And this is not to say the city is a literal cube. <laughs> it's missing the point. John's audience would have recognized what the measurements were describing. Do you? This description is a crystal clear allusion to the Holy of Holies. 
Moses learned that God planned to have his presence dwell with his people in a tabernacle. And we talked about this a little bit in part one of this series. So the Israelites constructed the tabernacle. And hundreds of years later, the prophet Ezekiel was taken up to the high mountain of the Lord. And an angel with a measuring rod showed him the dimensions for God's new temple. Like Revelation, the physical dimensions that were shown had symbolic meaning behind it. Both in the tabernacle during Moses' time and the temple Solomon built, there was only one extra special space shaped like a cube, the Holy of Holies, which is sometimes referred to as the most holy place. Revelation mentions a measuring rod of 12,000 stadia. Like many parts of this apocalyptic literature, this measurement is not to be taken literally, but shows that the city is massive. The city would be about 15,000 miles, which would cover the entire Mediterranean world of John's day, basically the size of the known world at that time. And the message here is that God's new creation temple is global in size. It will be large enough to include all redeemed people from every generation and every nation. Making us even more certain of what's being said, the whole city is said to be pure gold and has streets of gold. And we're, we're pretty familiar with that passage if you grew up in the church, you know, oh, heaven has streets of gold, whatever. Uh, and, but many people miss this. Although I'm not doubting the beauty or the splendor of the heavenly city, I'm suggesting that this symbol is painting a Jewish picture, again, another picture of the Holy of Holies like the measurements. 2 Chronicles 3.8 describes the appearance of the Holy of Holies as being overlaid with 600 talents of fine gold. That is approximately 46,000 pounds of gold. That's a lot. But Solomon didn't stop there. The whole temple had drapings and coverings made of gold. For the ancient audience of Revelation, hearing about streets of gold would make them think back to the Temple of Solomon and more specifically to the Holy of Holies. Walking on gold was symbolic of walking in the intimacy and majesty of God's sacred space. So for the whole city to be filled with streets of gold implies that the citizens would all be royal priests who would have the privilege and pleasure to walk on God's holy ground. We will be taking steps in God's world, but his world will be on our world. That's what's so amazing about it. You see, both the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament were faint previews of the eventual eternal dwelling of the Lord with his people. The temple represented God's presence with his people, but in the eternal state, the whole creation will be a temple. Every part of it. But again, what did he see in Revelation 21-22? There is no temple. After seeing the measurement, John sees no temple and it becomes clear, ah, because God is the temple. There's no temple because God is actually there in the fullness of his presence. Temples will no longer be needed since the reality of the temple's true meaning has arrived. The temple in Jerusalem was always designed, it seems, as a pointer to, uh, you know, an advanced symbol for the presence of God himself. When the reality is there, the signpost is no longer necessary. God and the Lamb become the realization of all that was symbolized by the temple. The shadow can fade to the background as the substance is manifested. And we've talked about this before back in part one as well, but the tabernacle and then also the temple were a microcosm of heaven, a miniature version of heaven. Like an architect with his scaled model of a project, he knows that the miniature model is not the real thing, but a micro version of it. The understanding of the temple here implicitly suggests that its purpose was to point to a future time when it would compass the whole world, much like an architect's model of a newly planned building is that small replica of what's to be built of a much larger scale. 
And I have a really good personal story that reminds me of everything we're talking about here. If anyone here has done long distance dating, uh, let me just say that it sucks. <laughs> so the only time I had to do distance dating with my now wife, Ariana, is during our engagement process. The last three months of our engagement, we were separated by distance. Um, I started a job up in Washington. She was going to move there after we got married. Um, but yeah, so oh, every night we talked on the phone. And just to catch up, check in, FaceTime, texted throughout the day. And thank goodness for technology. It was really cool. We didn't have to write letters to one another. But uh, yeah, let's be honest. Who would prefer um, FaceTime or phone calls versus the real thing of actual FaceTime and being in person with your spouse, right? No one would prefer that over to the thing. And it's funny because as soon as we got married our amount of text messages to one another and phone calls and FaceTime decreased. Well, why is that? Well, it's self-explanatory because we no longer needed those things. We didn't need to text each other because we were right by each other. And that was awesome. We didn't need to call each other because we can actually talk to one another. We didn't need to use the FaceTime app because we got real FaceTime. You see, the phone conversations and the technology of using that for distance dating were a placeholder until we truly were face-to-face. The temple is like that. It was a placeholder. It wasn't the the final permanent thing that we would all hope for. It was great, but it was a placeholder. And that's why John encourages us that there won't be a temple. Rather, God will be there as the temple. There won't be a temple there because God will be the temple. That's what it was all about. Likewise and much more, why would we settle for God's veiled presence in the temple when we could forever be satisfied in a new world that all of it is God's manifest presence? It's not that there won't be a temple. Instead, the whole world will be a temple because God will be our temple. You won't go to God's temple to worship. Everywhere will be sacred space and everything you do will be an act of worship. Enjoying God and enjoying God's new creation world will be worship. You see, to live in this city, which is the whole world, again, the whole thing is a temple, uh, to live in this giant cosmic temple is to live continually in the presence of the unveiled glory of God. When something is veiled, it's concealed. Think of lifting the bride's veil by a groom and symbolizing the privilege into a type of intimacy that was once forbidden. That's what we're talking about here. So that was a long one for the second T, but the second T is that God's temple will be there. So we have God's tabernacle will be in the new creation. We have that God's temple will be in the new creation. And the third and final T is that God's throne, uh, Greek thronos, It's a fun word. Uh, So God's throne will be there. Revelation 22, verses 1, and then skip down to verse 3. So Revelation 22, 1. Then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. Skip down to verse 3. And there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will worship him. What's the significance of the throne? What do you do on a throne? Think about it for a moment. If you're a king, where your throne is, is where your kingdom is. It's where you rule and govern your land. For God to have his throne with us is to explicitly say that this is where God resides and rules. And where God reigns, nothing of the curse or the consequences of sin can have a place there. So God's throne will mean the constant rule of righteousness and peace, resulting in unending joy. Right now in the current state, God's throne is in heaven. Psalm 11.4 says this, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Whereas right now God's throne is in heaven, in the new creation, heaven will marry earth and God's throne will be 
with his creation, not separated. We will live where he rules and reign where he lives. God's tabernacle and his temple and his throne will all be with us, and he will reign over all those who have longed to have God rule as king, finally. Yes, we want that. We want the God of the universe, the one true king, to rule as king. And there's more I want to say on this passage in Revelation 22, but that's for next week when we tackle our final few things in Revelation. But today, what we've seen so far is that in the coming new creation, there's a clear difference in how everything will be uh, by looking at how God's world and our world are merged and married. God's tabernacle, temple, and throne will be with us, representing an intimate relational connection and proximity. This is the Christian hope to live in unhindered intimate relationship with the triune God and as God's redeemed people with other redeemed people and his presence will be the greatest blessing of them all. And so I want to give you three P's that describe the quality of God's presence in the new creation. And again, this is meant to be memorable and this is on the handout. So uh, go ahead and fill it in if you'd like, but listen up. So here's the three P's affirming that the quality of God's presence in the new creation will be just superior. And this is just a memorable tool I use. So in the new creation, God's presence will be perfect, which is just like a way of saying unveiled in quality. Something that's perfect is the absolute ideal. It's flawless. It has no room for improvement. If there was a suggestion box for after the new creation is done and God said, hey, here's a suggestion box of how I can make it better, it would remain empty forever. Okay, it'll be perfect. And next P, in the new creation, God's presence will be pervasive, which is to say comprehensive in scope. There will not be a speck of creation that is not flooded with God's life, love, and goodness and presence. It will cover every square inch. And the last one, in the new creation, God's presence will be permanent, everlasting in duration. Something that is permanent has no end. It does not fade. It will endure forever. Putting it all together now, the establishment of the new creation will bring perfection, pervasiveness, and permanence to the presence of God with us in all the universe. It will be perfect, pervasive, and permanent. These three Ps have been a means for me to compare what it is, will be versus what it is right now. And although God is with us, his tabernacle, temple, and throne, his very manifest existence is not here in its entirety yet, but it will be. For the first time ever, God will finally, fully, and forever make his home on earth where all creation will feel his presence unlike ever before. Heaven, God's world, and earth, our world, will be joined together. It will be a wedding between the two worlds. God's space and our space will be one in the same. And there's one final thing I wanted to point out to you. And I saved this for last on purpose for today. In Revelation 21, 18 through 20, which we already read, there are a few precious stones that are seen by John describing the new Jerusalem. In fact, I have an activity for you. Pause this and look up ex Exodus 28, 15 through 20. So Exodus 28, 15 through 20, Ezekiel 28, 13, and Revelation 21, 18 through 20. So these three passages, Exodus 28, 15 through 20, Ezekiel 28, 13, and Revelation 21, 18 through 20. And do this. Observe what stones these passages have in common. So take a moment, do so. Ready? Go. Okay, if you're back, you either did that activity or you just are ready to hear what I have to say about this. If you didn't, uh, I highly encourage you to look up those passages on your own time and see it for yourself. But all right, so in the Exodus passage, the high priest's breastplate found in Exodus 28, 15 through 20 was gold and embedded 
in it had 12 stones. 12, think the 12 tribes of Israel. Each one represented the name of the tribe. Each stone was different, but precious. The, st- the list of stones in Exodus 28, 15 through 20, and Ezekiel 28, 13, and Revelation 21, 18 through 20 are strikingly similar. You'll notice that pretty easily. Exodus says that the purpose of the high priest's breastplate was to be a memorial. And now, what is it a memorial of? I'll tell you what it is. Eden. It's a memorial and remembrance of Eden. As evidenced by Ezekiel 28.13, where a strikingly similar list of stones was said to be found in Eden. Those stones that were found on the high priest's breastplate are also found in Eden. So what does this mean? Since Ezekiel comments that these precious stones were in Eden, and Revelation comments that these stones will be, will be the foundation of the garden city of the New Jerusalem, the high priest's breastplate is therefore in an emblem pointing backwards and forwards at the same time. It pointed back to Eden and forward to the New Jerusalem simultaneously. Isn't that cool? The precious stones on the high priest's shoulders and chest serve to remind the people of Eden, the ideal that should be kept alive in the hearts, dreams, and hopes of God's people. God intentionally had the high priest as his representative for all the people wear what symbolized the very life they lost but looked to regain, the paradise of Eden. The Lord encourages people with the memorial stones of the past, pointing them towards their promised future. And as the high priest would wear these memorial stones of Eden, somewhere he'd never been, so we too often long for what we have yet to experience. Did you catch that? Just like the high priest, we have nostalgia to return to a place we have never been before. Isn't that crazy? It's paradoxical in the sense that we understand that we will one day fulfill a desire we have always had the appetite for, but never had the luxury to taste for ourselves. The paradox lies in that we will taste life as it was always meant to be, but as we've never previously had it. Even Adam and Eve didn't have it as good as the new creation will be. We're, we were and were designed to have this longing for this new world, And so we, like the high priest, hold the ideal of Eden and the new Jerusalem in our hearts. You know, I I remember very vividly uh, when I saw this certain video that went viral on Facebook a few years ago. It had a montage of people of all ages who were deaf and due to the advances in technology were caught on camera experiencing sound for the first time. It was so emotional that I had chills watching it. The looks on their faces as they heard what uh, their loved ones sounded like for the first time. One in the clips included a little child, little, little child, probably a toddler, um, when hearing the device was turned on, was able to hear his mother singing to her, and this child started crying tears of joy to hear the voice of her mother that she has seen and known her whole life. What these people in this video, this well-done video, were experiencing, although new to them, wasn't foreign or far out. They were experiencing something human, something they were supposed to have experienced all along and never had the opportunity to experience till that very moment. Sound. Similarly, life in the new creation won't be like going off to some foreign land in a place in which the customs, language, or people make us feel like total outsiders who don't have a place there. It will be like feeling like coming home after a long journey and experiencing all the nostalgia of what makes home 
home. Our journey is about returning to a place we have never been, a place where the fullness of God's presence resides, where we will be exposed to the unveiled, unfiltered, untamed glory of God.